Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast uh, with low energy, um, lower energy. Mellow cast. Mellow cast. Yeah, no cold open banter for you there. You just went right in, huh? Oh, well, I guess, yeah, I, I kind of did. Um, it's okay. I mean, you can banter me now. Um, I'd like to be- banter. Yeah, I'll banter you. To um, hey, how you doing, bud? Uh, doing good. That you're kind of a banter rooster there. Um, you know, you had to talk a big game, but you really couldn't put much behind it. Well, look, I you know I'm all bantered out. We've been playing uh, Monster of the Week for like an uh, an hour. Um, if you want to, you you probably have heard. Is this uh, Arthur? Is this episode coming out after episode one drop or episode zero drops? Yes. All right. Well, then you've you've heard in your <laughs> Arthur, feed like just made a decision. Yes. Looked like on his face. I was no I was trying to think of timing, but yeah, I, I published the episode zero last night. Oh, okay, it's on Patreon. Well, there you go. So if you're a, Patri- a public post though, so you can go listen to it for free. Yeah, go over to patreon.com forward slash GTM and you can hear episode zero of us setting up a monster of the week campaign. And yeah, I'm all bantered out, man. Maybe I am the banter rooster. Yeah, you banter. I've been uh, bantering as Ed for uh, so long. Yeah, I'm sleepy. <laughs> Fair enough, fair enough. Oh, hey, we're here gathered around a table to do the thing that we do, which is just talk about movies you'll never talk about in a film space course. And I do believe The Mask of Zorro would definitely qualify. I think so. Uh, yeah, for sure. It's a forgotten gem, but we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But to warn you, dear listener, this is an analysis show, not a review show. And even though this movie is from 1995, uh, we are... Um, 98. 98? Is it that late? It's that late. Yeah. Wow. He followed uh, GoldenEye's 95, and this was uh, his uh, Martin Campbell's follow-up. Maybe that's where my math numbers got all mixed up but anyway uh, we're going to be doing some spoilers um, but we'll avoid them for the first part of the show the way we do that is uh, we do synopsis we do uh, thumbs up thumbs down reviews which is very very spoiler light we expand the syllabus which is slightly heavier in the spoilerage and then finally we get down to business and it's all the spoilers all the time as we do analysis so uh, you've been warned about that i am still dustin I'm still Arthur. I am still Dalton. And uh, let's go ahead and hear that synopsis, Arthur, if you don't mind. Uh, this comes from IMDb, uh, written by Nick Reganis. Uh, in 1821, Old California, after humiliating once more the evil Spanish governor, Don Rafael Montero, uh, the mysterious black-caped masked avenger of the oppressed Don Diego de la Vega, or Zorro, finds himself incarcerated. With his only daughter raised by Don Rafael as his own, the grizzled swordsman makes a daring escape nearly two decades later and takes under his wing the unrefined outlaw Alejandro Murrieta uh, to teach him the ropes and hopefully become the next Zorro. Yeah, he does literally learn the ropes. <laughs> now the stage seems set for a ferocious final confrontation as the new young rapier wielder uh, prepares to thwart the despicable governor's sinister plans. Can Alejandro live up to the legendary Zorro's name? Dun-dun-dun, only time will tell. But we'll get to that in just a little bit. Let's talk about this uh, late 90s uh, action extravaganza sword... Sword buckling? I want to say swashbuckling. Swashbuckling, sword buckling. Swashbuckling sword play filled a film uh, with great stunts. Um, But, um, Dalton... Did you like The Mask of Zorro? Ooh, I like this movie a lot. Uh, I uh, have not seen this film since I was a small child, um, so I, I was pretty excited to revisit it, honestly. I didn't remember a whole lot about it, and from the opening moments, I was pretty much sold. Uh, there's a really long, uh, just holding the screen on a, on a, on a blacked-out screen, letting the score play, um, and that kind of cuts into this really great opening shot of a child Antonio Banderas cutting eye holes into the side of a black tent. Uh, it's just great. It's a great opening. Uh, g- good kind of fun moment to let the score really sit with the audience. Like So from the, the opening moments, I was like, oh, damn, this is really well constructed. Uh, and it just uh, kept being a gift that kept on giving. Uh, the entire first act, really, uh, I, I was just fully wrapped up in it. Uh, it. It is an incredibly tight film in that first act. It just gets through so much exposition and so much setup and origin story so quickly. Uh, and I think it buys itself time to do that by opening up with a pretty extravagant action set piece uh, and uh, letting movie magic let you believe Anthony Hopkins could be Zorro. Uh, it rules, honestly. Uh, I, I, I'm kind of a big fan of uh, uh, young age makeup, uh, dapper Anthony Hopkins in this movie. Uh, but yeah, it gets uh, gets you a lot of good uh, action and uh, drama set up in that that first you know what fifteen minutes, yeah. Uh, and then the the next thirty of the first act, the next thirty minutes of the first act or so of this film is just full of stakes and, and emotion and drama and, and you know characters being thrust into uh, tough choices and you know bad things happening to people they care about and yeah, it's just it really hits the ground running in terms of. Uh, you know, it's dramatic narrative. And then in the second act, it does kind of unfold 
in a really interesting way in terms of kind of what it's doing with class within this narrative of a you know a Zorro with what Zorro is you know a Robin Hood type a uh, a masked Avenger for the people uh, and it does not you know despite being a Hollywood film shy away from any of that and I honestly had not remembered at all how baked into the, the running of the film all those themes were and I'm, I'm sure we'll get into that more as we yeah. get later in the show but uh, again I was just so shocked by it uh just how much of that kind of uh uh, thought went into the story they were telling. It really did kind of catch me off guard so much that any moment where I was, you know, frustrated with the decision that was made, uh, I kind of ended up being brought back into it just by how committed they were to to having real kind of interesting themes within the runtime of, excuse me, uh, within the runtime of this film. Um, I, I do feel like we missed a, a cut training sequence that I would have very much liked to have seen. Uh, we get a lot of, uh, you know, fun uh, learning how to fight and uh, run fast and good montage, but we don't get a montage of Anthony Hopkins teaching Antonio Banderas how to dance and be sassy. Uh, really could have gone with that. Uh, we get, we get uh, a hint that he's going to get a charm school training montage, and then we just cut straight to him, you know, pulling off his charm school training. Yeah. Really could have used that montage. Uh, outside of that, I really don't have any complaints. I, I, I think it's pretty much a, a whip-smart film from start to finish. Uh, it, it it does feel like a film from a bygone era, and I think when you look at the cinema of the 90s, and I think, well, we've talked about this on the show, um, and I, I think recently I, I did a, a syllabus kind of making this point. Uh, I can't remember what film it was for, but uh, the further we get out from the 90s, the more their, their cinema starts to feel like the cinema of the 40s and 50s. It yeah. really does feel like uh, the, those big studio films of the 90s start to feel more like classical Hollywood movies uh, because they are very much still in that mode and that style. And that doesn't always work, but here it does just, there. there is a a lining up of 90s blockbuster sensibilities of old school Hollywood uh just uh, design uh, in terms of just plotting structure and who are the characters uh, and just like feel uh, in terms of where score happens, how set pieces are constructed. Uh, it, it, again, it, it just, it, it's so weird to watch a film from less than uh, 20 years ago. You just feel like a product of a bygone era or I, I guess just barely over 20 years old. Um, wait, no, 98. Sorry. Um, 22 years old. 22, 22 years old. Gosh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it, it, it's yeah, not those, all those 90 movies are start, start hitting their 30th <clears throat> anniversaries. That's right. Yeah, man. So again, it's, it's not quite a 30 year old film, but it does feel so much uh, from a different time. It, yeah. it just is so different than what you get from a studio adventure film these days. Uh, and so again, it, it is fun in that regard to just kind of watch how much movies have changed, uh, especially in Hollywood, uh, in the, in the last few decades. But yeah, I don't really have a bad thing to say about it. I think it's a lot of fun. Uh, we'll probably unpack uh, some messy stuff again. I've already alluded to it's it's really kind of complex and interesting uh, anti-colonial and class themes. And I think th the film hurts itself by having these really interesting themes. And yet uh, there's a lot of weird ethnic swapping going on throughout the film um, that, you know, your mileage may vary in terms of how much that bothers you. And it's definitely good and OK to be bothered by that. But uh, I don't know. The, the themes here uh, speak uh, loudly enough that I think it gets over that hump, but it does kind of, you know, take away from the film at times. Uh, but again, th that aside, um, yeah, I I'm, I'm, was just pretty much uh, wrapped up in this the entire time. I really appreciated uh, what a good time it is. Uh, again, there's there's plenty to parse through in terms of problematizing the film. Uh, there's some stuff that has to happen there. But just look, as uh, 90s swashbuckling adventure films go, boy, howdy. Uh, no, no, this movie, no Pirates of the Caribbean. I'll make that stand. Yeah, I, I think this is I think a, I think this is a more influential film than it's gotten credit for. Uh, and it's a ton of fun. Alrighty. Well, thank you for that very much. What do you think, Arthur? Do you like the mask of Zorro? Yes. Okay, good. I, uh, I, I do really get it. I, I got a big kick out. I was surprised how well it held up. Yeah. I think to Dalton's point, a lot of that timelessness of it comes from the fact that it is so reliant on these very practical, uh, set pieces and i was reading something about what ebert had mentioned you know the set pieces really don't uh they're established by the narrative they they don't exist just to exist mm. um and i think that's really key to it because there are so many movies wherein uh, you're just waiting to get from the next set piece and you've got some exposition tying them all together yeah. and those movies are usually kind of lifeless and not engaging but i think this one uh is full of life and full of heart and full of joy and Antonio Banderas is great. Anthony Hopkins is, is having a lot of fun here. Uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones is a lot of fun. You know, it's got a great cast of 
uh, mustache twirling villains and, and all that fun oh, stuff. All the villains are so evil. Yeah. I can't wait to talk more about them. Yeah, it's it's a great blast. I, I think in that regard, um, I appreciate all of the the stunt work. The we were talking about the stunt riders off air and. Man, uh, movies today don't have enough horse horse chases with stunt riders or sword fights. Uh, both of those things are executed incredibly well. They're so good. Uh, here in the Mass of Zorro, I appreciate that quite a bit. I, I think that Jones and, and Banderas have a great chemistry uh, between them. Uh, really, from the moment uh, they first lock eyes, uh, it, it feels kind of like sparks are, are there on screen. Uh, and you don't really get that kind of chemistry often anymore i don't you know i don't think i feel like that's also kind of a very classic hollywood thing where you you could find uh acting pairs who really sparked and it just doesn't feel as, as common anymore yeah they just throw big actors together and it's like well they're both pretty you'll like this yeah like, no they they're just kind of uh flirting like children yeah. um and again this is a big marvel movie disease but i think you're right it's it's seeped into most of the cinema of, of current times and yeah you don't get that you know, I want to see these two people make out chemistry uh, yeah. quite so often these days yeah. in, in terms of our big adventure films. Yeah, and we talked about it again in another 98 movie with Out of Sight with uh, yeah. Colony and Lopez who have that kind of shared chemistry as well. Um, and so, yeah, I, I like Mask of Zorro a lot. I, I think, you know, to Dalton's point, I don't really have anything negative to say about it. Um, uh, I, I would like to have seen more. I, I think there's a lot there you could have parsed out and done a full, you know, relaunch of the TV show or, you know, something like that to kind of really explore a lot of those elements, but uh, I, I dig it quite a bit. Um, love, love all the practical elements of it. It was nice to see a movie not uh, flooded with CGI or bad CGI. That bit bad '90s CGI that was kind of rampant in a lot of blockbusters. Oh. And I, I think that uh, Campbell was smart to to do it this way. Uh, and yeah, nothing but nothing but love for the Mask of Zorro here. All right. Well, thank you very much for that. I would just echo everything that has been said so far. Yes, indeed, the chemistry is real. He was young and vigorous. I mean, he was very vigorous, Father. Uh, <laughs> man. Uh, and, and that flamenco dance? That, flama that oh. flamenco dance. Uh, All day, every day. Every yeah. film should have a dance break. We've been saying this for years. <laughs> no one listens. Uh, that's too bad. So, yeah, I mean, everything works. I think the plot moves in a way. Uh, it doesn't get into sort of Basil Exposition territory, you know, as you said. Uh, there's a couple moments here and there. Was it, oh, you've been down here in this dungeon for 20. You know, it's like a little, you know, whatever. And the Mexican accents are Cheech and Chongy a little bit. I'll uh, tell you what, though. The one that is kind of fun is Antonio Banderas is trying to do some accent work when he's, like, passing as a Spanish nobleman. Yes. He's doing a real, like, lispy Spanish accent as that character. Like, there is there is an attempt made, but yeah. I agree. There is some uh, of the, the accents the, are the, the questionable. Accents specifically, yeah, are yeah. just, wow, uh, at times. But, I, you know, it's fine. I mean, we know what we're doing and what we're, what we're signed up for. And, you know, we'll talk more about, you know whitewashing and you know color coding and brown face and all that good stuff later uh so yeah there are problematics there but that being said hopkins good zeta jones yeah um i don't want to say any more than that at this point um you know antonio banderas amazing i i believe in all of that and then action i mean i'm writing a dissertation about kung fu movies and uh, yeah you give me a movie that's about swordplay yeah, yeah Ugh. Yeah, I'm there for that. And so, yeah, uh, as you said, uh, the horse stunts are great. And also, the, you know, we have a, a moment in the movie where you're threatening to blow up a mine, and uh, there's a moment of rescue and a sort of melodramatic thing, and then you go ahead and blow it up. Oh, we're going to talk about how the moral of this movie is blowing up mines. Yes. Well, I'm there for that. Yeah, uh-huh. So, uh, anyway, very, very good stuff. Very, very fun. And uh, a very, very enjoyable time um, in the Cells household watching this film. So, yes, our thumbs are all wide up and... Uh, Wide up? Way up? I don't know. Wide. High up. <laughs> I don't know. I tell you what, though. The last two minutes of this film are some of the most 1998 stuff I've ever seen, including the hard cut to the uh, pop song uh, in, oh, the, in, in credits, the credits yeah. but also just like this wonderful, like, overly, again, uh, sometimes you just got to have your characters pose. Uh, this uh, weird serendipity of uh, internet people talking about movies, Patrick Willems. I uh, just posted a video about Mask yeah. of Zorro and made the same point that, like, Sam Raimi gets it with Spider-Man, right? Like, it doesn't make sense. Sometimes you just got to let a cool character in a cool costume do a cool pose. Oh, yeah. Uh, and Zorro opens and ends on Zorro doing cool poses on a backlit, like, stage. It yeah. kicks ass. It's so old-timey and fun. It, uh, absolutely. Uh, and it does have a lot of that sort of 40s serial kind of feel yeah. to it, and I'm all for it. Which, so. again, it turns into also feeling extremely 90s, just like with right. some of the choices that get made in terms of how things wrap up. It's 
it's fun to look back on a different time in film and just see those those commonalities, those threads, and how they echo older threads like the 40 serials. Yeah, for sure. So there you go, dear listener. I think it's time to expand the syllabus. So you get to teach a class, guys, uh, in your imaginations. Um, but imaginations where everything's possible. And so, uh, yes, you do the imagination symbol together with the snail. Yes. Yep. Rainbow. Very good. Uh, now... Uh, we're teaching a class, and Mascazoro is a anchor point in it, and you're going to augment this with other readings and or viewings. What class are you teaching, Dalton? Well, to your point about how we will be getting into whitewashing and brownface and all those things as we get into uh, our, our analysis portion, portion of the show, uh, I, I did think about building a class around that and decided, nope, no, I don't no I'm not so bold as to presume that I should teach that class. Uh, I was just mostly going to talk about this and Cloud Atlas, and I was going to try to fill in some less good examples. Well, we kind of did that already. We talked about Singing in the Rain and Carol Clover's essay. Right? That was another yeah. reason. Yeah, yeah. We, we've talked about this a lot on the, the show. Jazz singer. And again, exactly. Like, I don't want to make people watch the jazz singer. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm not qualified to teach that class. Now, listener, if you've got a lot of supplemental readings uh, that you think uh, people should know about that would be good for such a class like that, please send them to the show. Uh, you can email us at goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. Include uh, PDFs and full bibliography. Yeah, or or just you know, your, or just your yeah. Thoughts. If you have a couple of movies that you were like, hey, if you wanted to talk about like the history of this thing, uh, the trouble with Apu was that, that documentary that uh, Harry Connaboli did yeah. uh, about the character. That would have been another one that we would have oh, looked at. Interesting. Uh, but again, I, not not the class. So we're going to be talking about the Mask of Zorro IP management and you, or uh, the legacy sequel has always been among us. Um, uh. So we're going to take a look at uh, th- this. Is going to be a, a, a class more focused on probably. Uh, a handful of things that we're going to look at the full text of, and then a lot of just kind of talking about modes and, and trends. Like, we're going to talk about 2015. We'll talk about the year of the Legacy sequel with your Mad Max Fury Roads and your Force Awakens and your Creeds. Like, that. that's a year where you got to talk about, like, yeah. how you manage an IP well. But th- I think this is going to be a screen studies class kind of focused on making art within a franchise and uh, how, you, uh, how studios and filmmakers uh, often whiff it and then rebound. Um, so again, we'll talk about some of those big years, but the big like full comparisons we'll be doing. Uh, we're definitely going to look at the Mask of Zorro. We're going to pair it with the the previous Zorro film that came out, the, the last theatrically released Zorro film, Zorro film before uh, the Mask of Zorro, and that is the George Hamilton starring '80s cult classic uh, Zorro the Gay Blade, which is more progressive than you would think, but pretty troubling uh, i watched this as a child with my father who uh just found it a, a real delight was very amused by it uh it's that's got its charms i'm not gonna sit here and pretend it's it doesn't have its, its moments and again in the early 80s having the lead character again uh zorro the, so it's zorro's two sons one uh is is gay and one is not and the gay character because it's 1981 they're both played by george hamilton is very flamboyant uh caricaturely so and it's, yeah, it's troubling in its depiction, but there, again, it's 1981, and he's kind of the lead. Uh, he dunks on the, the, the straight Zorro son a lot. Like, it's, it's just about how he's kind of the more capable of the two of them for most of the film, and that's kind of fun. Uh, look, the, it's a troubling film, but I think there's, there's something to glean from it. And also when you pair it with The Mask of Zorro, which is kind of a much more straightforward, uh, traditional, like, revamping of Zorro, I, I think there's a lot to, to just glean on glean from these two adaptations of this very long-running serial character. Uh, We're also going to be looking at uh, other comic book serial characters, obviously, how could you not? And I think uh, recent examples that are going to be really helpful for this are going to be David Ayer's Suicide Squad and Kathy Yan's Birds of Prey or The Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn. Um, Again, Suicide Squad, you know that we don't like this movie. I think we talked about it way back in the day on uh, Back to the Movies, one of our our old podcasts we used to do. Uh, Suicide Squad's not good. Uh, Birds of Prey, uh, one of the last films I got to see in the theater before we all stopped going outside. Uh, A pretty damn good movie. Uh, One I like quite a bit. Um, And I think they... Uh, are both, uh, you know, have some some troubles to them. Uh, Suicide Squad, much more so. And again, I think you can just pair those two as an interesting way. And really, you could talk about a couple, a handful of other of uh, similar DC Comics films from you know the last couple of years because there's been a lot of weird changes in that the management of that IP. But again, I think using the the character Harley Quinn in these two these two films specifically, uh, just kind of looking at. Uh, again, maybe the larger attempts at Warner Brothers to make DC Comics films over the last, you know, eight years or so, however long it's been. Yeah, eight years since uh, Man of Steel is 2012. 
so kind of looking at this last decade of Warner Brothers uh, production with through the lens of these two films specifically. Uh, and then we'll move on. And I think another interesting one to look at in terms of managing your IPs is going to be Westworld. Um, I was thinking about Jurassic Park, but decided to go another Michael Crichton story. Uh, and, and again, I think you look at the film Westworld, but you also look at the TV show. Um, and, and more specifically, um, kind of the season two and season three. I just recently caught up with the, the premiere of season three, and it's turned itself into a much more different. It's much more Blade Runner-y, cyberpunk-y. Uh, what even is an AI? What's an algorithm? Uh, all kinds of like really. There's a crime app. Yeah, it's it's just a full cyberpunk TV show now, uh, and I think that's a good example to look at. Uh, season two of Westworld's like a little too bogged down and uh, an unstructured uh, linear time progression in your story. It's just it's too obsessed with mixing around memories and time uh, and and identity and um, uh, consciousness and th- that's fun, but it gets itself a little bogged down in its its own mythology. This this season three seems to be leaning into pulp a little bit more to, to kind of help things along. And again, I think looking at that's very helpful because Westworld is you know there's a lot there. Again, talking about Blade Runner, another series will probably come up in a, such a class as this. Um, I, I think it's helpful to to look at just different approaches to the same source material and, and see like uh, how you can let different ideas kind of drive what your story is going to be. Uh, so I think that'll be helpful. Uh, we'll also be looking at another Martin Campbell joint, uh, Casino Royale, and pairing it with uh, the Pierce Brosnan Die Another Day. Uh, again, uh, Bond went away for a while. A lot of you probably don't remember this, but Die Another Day was in production before 9-11 happened, and the villain of that film is, uh, I think, a rogue North Korean general. They did not know what to do with Bond uh, before mm-hmm. the war on terror started in earnest, uh, and they've kind of done an okay job at making that character uh, a critique on that in some ways. Well, they've tried. But again, I think helpful and useful in terms of looking at how uh, an IP character uh, evolves across uh, filmmakers uh, in, in attempts at launching a story. Uh, lastly, I, I think because Zorro is very focused on masked heroism uh, and the the drive of trauma within uh, masked heroism stories, uh, we've got to look at Watchmen, uh, the book, the movie, and the television show. I think all three, that'll probably be the most extensive thing we do. Uh, again, because it's just looking at it, what you can do with an IP. Uh, and I think the movie and the show uh, and how those reflect back on the original source material are deeply fascinating. Um, looking at what a Zack Snyder does versus uh, looking at what a Damon Lindelof does, if you're talking about the, you know, the kind of creative uh, figureheads uh, of, of these different uh, attempts at adapting this comic book. Uh, I think it kind of tells you a lot about like what people look at in your source material in an IP uh, again, I, I think it allows you to get into the psychology of like the business making decisions that go on in these kind of stories, uh, how audiences uh, perceive them. I think we'll get to talk a lot about how, um, you know, Internet culture around film production has really changed things uh, in the last 30 uh, years or so. Uh, yeah, I think it, I think it's a class that allows us to, to look at a lot of movies, some good, some bad, some in between and kind of examine uh, just how the churn like, you know, the, we, we, we try to pretend that we're. We're in some new thing where they're only making uh, films based on pre-existing materials. This is not a new thing. This has always been what Hollywood's done. Uh, it's always been a little bit more common to have things based on other properties. You can look back at the history of Hollywood and see plenty of uh, films based on best-selling books and classic works of literature and on and on it goes. It's not a new thing. And I think looking at it as an old thing in a new context is super helpful. Mm-hmm. I, th- I agree. I think that would be an interesting class, and I would wish to take it. Um, moving on to Mr. Arthur Gordon, um, what class are you teaching with Zorro? Well, you can't talk film studies if you don't talk about that one lauded school of thought auteur theory. That's true. Uh, and so I want to set this up uh, with a couple of different essays, and I want to look at Andrew Saris, mm-hmm. uh, the godfather of, or the father of auteur theory uh, as it stands. Well, the American. Yeah. yeah. Um, really kind of working with the uh, Cayeta Cinema and their their critics as well. Um, but his pivotal uh, essay notes on auteur theory in 1962, and he wrote a couple of other editions uh, and updates with that. Um, also, the auteur theory uh, revisited. Uh, then I also want to look at Peter Wollin's The Auteur Theory uh, from Science and Meaning in the Cinema uh, and kind of defining those traits of the auteur um, and, and talk about the the other uh, director, which is the metteur en scène. Um, or just kind of the journey craftsman uh, that Martin Campbell is. Yeah, your your Chris Columbus's, your uh, Joe Johnson's, your Martin Campbell's. 
Yeah, and so that, that's kind of the groundwork I'd want to lay there uh, from a textual standpoint and kind of defining, uh, you know, what sets an auteur apart from just a, a metteur en scène um, and those defining characteristics. Obviously, the, the key uh, that kind of separates is for the auteur, as is, is always defined by Saris and others, is that interior meaning uh, that's uh, distinguished from looking at their body of work. Um, and so having seen several Martin Campbell movies, I want to look at the journeyman. We don't ever talk about journeyman directors in that same, you know, I, I really appreciate Joe Johnson and Chris Columbus yeah, quite sure. a bit. Uh, they've made some very pivotal movies uh, in, in their time. Yeah. People like to act like, uh, and by people, I mean me uh, and guys that look like me. I uh, like to pretend David Venture is some like uh, great secret uh, master of the arts. Not really. All of his films are about nihilism and he steals from a lot of, uh, accomplished filmmakers, as yeah. as they all do. But, I mean, it doesn't make him any better than somebody like uh, yeah. Martin Campbell. And we can definitely, you know, complicate the auteur theory and why yeah. it doesn't work in, in the grand scheme and why there are only a few directors that could really get, especially in the Hollywood system. I think outside of the Hollywood system, you could find more auteurs mm. uh, that fit that definition. International yeah, auteurs. Yeah, definitely. Bergman's and Fellini's and Antonioni's and... Uh, your Claire Denise, yeah, yeah. You know, oh, Godard yeah. and and Truffaut. Yeah, there's there's more of a mechanism for yeah. that because yeah, Hollywood only allows so many cults of personality to be happening yeah. at one time. And in the American system, I mean, obviously, there's a lot more. You know, especially if you're working in a studio system, there's a lot more over overreach from mm. executives and producers and things of that nature. Um, and defining the auteur is a little trickier in that regard. Or if um, you, you know, you're Catherine Bigelow and you make a K19 in that system, and then yeah. you uh, go away for. A decade, yeah, because they won't give any more money. And I think Martin Campbell's a really good case study of of the material sand, especially in modern cinema. Uh, so I kind of want to go through his filmography and pick some stuff just throughout the. He's been working since the early seventies. Um, he started off with a, a sexploitation slash softcore effort called The Sex Thief in nineteen seventy. We all got to start somewhere, baby, and just kind of tell me some, more. You know, exploitation <laughs> things of that nature. The Sex Thief. Uh, is about an inspector and an insurance investigator both have a major stake in revealing the identity of an audacious jewel thief and sexy hijinks ensue. Are you going to make the class um, watch that one or are they going to uh, do that? I'll leave it up to them. Yeah, I'll that's on their own time. <laughs> yeah, I, I bet we'll probably don't YouTube. do that. Um, <laughs> we probably don't have that in seminar. Yeah, you don't, um, you don't want to make them watch that in class. <laughs> and then through the 80s, he's really working, uh, and through the late 70s and early 80s, he's working a lot of TV. He's doing Minder, Shoestring, The Professionals, uh, Bergerac, uh, and several others kind of detective and, and procedural type shows he's got a, a real big tv show under his belt doesn't he i remember looking at his filmography um, and prep and i i feel like i remember seeing he did homicide life on the street a couple was, of episodes that's that probably the one, the one yeah uh which was 93 uh, he did a couple of episodes there it looks like um in 93 so in that first season uh so really pivoted to tv for quite a while for quite a while yeah and then he kind of comes back late 80s he does criminal law which really sounds great i, I was hoping to watch it I think it's free, but it's got Gary Oldman and Kevin Bacon, um, and it's a lawyer defends a killer, but soon after he wins, he finds out the killer is guilty. Oh, it's a primal fear. Yeah. Oh, hell yeah. Uh, but I think the uh, the, Spoilers. the killer turns a lot earlier, and he has yeah. to stop him from killing again. This sounds more interesting than yeah. primal fear. Um, and so that's probably where I'd start. I'd probably start with the uh, the sex thief uh, and then move into that late 80s, kind of move back into, into movies with criminal law. He does some more of these kind of low to mid-budget action thrillers. Um, and then I want to do one that's an HBO original called Cast a Deadly Spell. Uh, stars Fred Ward, Julianne Moore, Clancy Brown. And it is a hard-boiled 1948 film noir uh, set in the world of Lovecraft. Um, Fred Ward plays uh, H Detective H. Philip Lovecraft uh, in a world where everybody uh, uses magic the way we would use technology. God, sounds so uh, cool. I'm, I'm and so, there for this. Yeah, it, it is a blast. Um, but it kind of shows some of those those. Uh, I think hallmarks that, that define his his style that the very uh, heavy reliance on old school techniques, uh, practical effects, um, very very uh, economic use of his uh, shoestring budget, things of that nature, and, and letting uh, letting the cast shine. I think that's another thing he's really good at is letting his cast shine. Um, so I'd move there, and then I'd probably go ahead and do um, Goldeneye. Uh, sure. From 95, which is first big IP that he gets to work with, um, kind of moving Bond into the 90s. He brings in Brosnan. Um, and you can kind of see, I mean, the set pieces in that really, uh, again, show his, you know, the, the tank sequence through the town. 
very practical, That's very cool smart. Uh, and then even the ending, uh, and we kind of see that ending lifted again in Mask of Zorro uh, because Sean Bean falls and then stuff falls on top of him, yeah. uh, which is echoed in Mask of Zorro with well, the ending there and, and the, again, the captain. We open Mask of Zorro with a, a, some really cool like proto parkour foot chase stuff, and then yeah. he would relaunch Bond again with Casino Royale. Yeah. And yeah, you can tell that this guy, you, you know, we we've already classified him as a as a journeyman or a, a, a what's the what's the the fancy phrase? Yeah, we've classified him as Maturansin, but like even as an action director, he clearly has like things he's preoccupied yeah. with, which uh, I think is really interesting. And so he's got the craft down really well. And he knows his stuff. And the Casino Royale is the other one where yeah. you know I, I would probably go to. Uh, then from there, I probably would do Green Lantern, uh, 2011's film. Because I think it's a fascinating instance where the journeyman just doesn't fit the project. Mm. I, I think you have a guy who is very good with practical, with uh, very base shoestring type stuff, and, and working with a uh, good cast and having a good cast and a lot of notable uh, headbutting on set. He wanted Bradley Cooper, studio wanted Ryan Reynolds, uh, and, and you know you can kind of. They, they butted heads quite a bit on, on set, and so it's in a film that relies heavily on CGI, uh, and it is made in a post-MCU world, which I think shapes it as well. And it's, I think, an instance where the journeyman doesn't match the project, and, and I think that's important to explore and see why those failures you know kind of don't add up and, and to earlier successes. And then from there, I'm going to go with his most recent film, uh, which is The Foreigner from 2017. The movie kicks ass. It's so good. Uh, with Jackie Chan and obviously reteaming with Pierce Brosnan uh, for that. Um, and man, it, it, is, it goes back to his roots and yeah. doing the things he's very well uh, known for and uh, well-rounded with. And uh, man, just seeing uh, 60-year-old Jackie Chan, who's kind of a step off of his game but still ahead of everybody else, is a really fascinating dynamic. Yeah, it's so cool to like take Jackie Chan's, uh, you know, Charlie Chaplin uh, dance comedy fighting and turn it into an older man who's and not grounded. as good as fighting as he yeah. used to be. Yeah, and it's kind of so, grounds it in a way that's yeah. unique, I think. Well, and he does it with Mask of Zorro and Casino Royale, too, right? Like, yeah. he finds the center of the emotional core of pain within these action heroes. And, and, and again, you know, that, that, that script, you know, that's act, that's your actors, that's your writers as well. But and, and if we're saying the, the director is the, the manager of tone, uh, yeah, it, it is an interesting thing that kind of crops up across all of his movies. There is a deep sadness within his action heroes. Yes. Yeah. And so I think that would be my uh, my course, my uh, journeyman's appreciation month, we'll call it. Nice. Very, very cool. So I think um, if I were teaching Mask of Zorro, I think what it would be, it would be an entire course on fighting cinema, various kinds of fight cinema. So you mm. might have a module on like the sports fighting movie where you watch your Rockies and your Creeds. And yeah, your, your warrior. Your warrior. And, you know, those kinds of things. You would talk about, you know, the different levels of that. Uh, and uh, this uh, was Kung Fu, obviously, and the various ninjas and, you know, number of other modules. Your, your Wushu films, maybe uh, your your your, uh, your Gun Fu movies. Mm-hmm. Right, for sure. Yeah, your your Equilibriums and well, Wix, Wix John. <laughs> maybe your Wix John, but not your Equilibriums equaled. Equilibriums. Yeah, I forgot how much you hate that movie. I don't like it. Um, but uh, for the, the purpose of that class, it actually might work. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, this would be the uh, the fencing, the uh, swashbuckling uh, thing. And so I, basically I would just pick a, a selection of films uh, that are that are good with the swashbuckling. And so uh, Mask of Zorro is one of those. Uh, the Count of Monte Cristo is another one thematically very interesting. Which, uh, which one? Uh, the one with Jim Caviezel. Oh, and, really? Yeah. I, don't know if, God, I haven't seen that in so long. Uh, I would have called Monte it. Cristo? Yeah. No, I would have called it the one with Luis Guzman, but <laughs> Louis, uh, Luis Guzman. I just go in there, I take him out, bang, bang, bang. <laughs> I, I really thought you were going to recommend uh, the old school one. Uh, I, I haven't seen oh the old school Frenchy one. There's a, another American kind of Monte uh, There might be, I don't know. But uh, this anyway, I haven't seen this in years. The sword fights in that one are real good. They are pretty good. They oh, are cool. pretty good, and also just thematically, it's really kind of interesting. Sure. And the, the way in which revenge sort of always sort of undergirds the swashbuckling film in an mm. interesting kind of way. Revenge slash you know saving the damsel, which is usually an act of revenge against a sort of nemesis kind of character, mustache twirling Richelieu, which brings us to The Musketeer, uh, which is the 2001 effort uh, with uh, Xing Xing Zhan uh, doing all the stunt choreography. Um, I thought it was John Wu Ping, but it's not. Um, really? Okay. Yeah, it's Xing Xing Yang. And uh, anyway, it's... Uh, it's rope foo. I mean, it's rope foo, but it's also swashbuckling, and it's this weird East meets West kind of moment. Also, Catherine Deneuve, because uh, mm. you know, 
As one does. That's a reason all by itself. Um, as is Catherine Zeta-Jones. You know who directed that? Uh, I do did. Peter, I think it's Hyams. Hyams, yeah, who yeah. did two, 2010, uh, the sequel to 2001 A Space Odyssey. <laughs> he did 2010, The Year We Made Contact. Uh, Time Cop, End of Days. Weird, 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 weird filmography on this guy. Yeah. Oh, man, a Musketeer. What a film. Musketeer. I mean, it's Lou, not good. You're a time <laughs> cop. <laughs> cop. Uh, have you ever seen Time well, Cop, co- Arthur? I have not. We you have it. not seen Time Cop? JCVD, right? JCVD, yeah. I don't think I've seen that one. Uh, it's got my favorite time travel rule of all time, which is if you touch your past self, like if your time traveling self and your, your past self touch, you'll blow up each you'll other. You'll create a singularity. Yeah, you'll create a space-time <laughs> continuum singularity and blow each other up. I'm not well-versed in the JCVD. Oh, man, yeah. Oh, buddy. We might have to do a JCVD month on the show. Yes, please. I've seen... Uh, I think I saw Universe of Soldiers. Is that the one where he's on the run? There's a, couple, he's, there's a couple of Universe of Soldiers, one of which I he's think on the run. He is in one of them, yeah. Yeah. With Dolph Lundgren. Yeah, I've seen that one. It's time for you to take your medication. I've seen it a Hard few Target uh, is really the one we got to go with. Uh, John Lewis first And then American we've got to do film. JCVD. Too. Yeah. Bloodsport... Yeah. All right, we'll enough in blood sport. We've done blood sport. We've yeah. done blood sport. Oh, yeah. yeah, enough yeah. inside baseball though. Yes. Um. So yeah, those would be the movies that I would select and just talk about choreography mm. and choreography credits and yep. again just the action movie itself and the way in which uh, the set piece is the vehicle for narrative. Those would be the kind of discussions that we would have throughout the course and the ways in, in particular uh, the arts of fencing are being displayed uh, in those films. So uh, there you go. That would be my syllabus and the syllabus of my dear co-hosts. Your uh, watching reading list just got much longer. But now, my friends, it is time to get down to business. It's business. It's business time. I don't know. I still kind of want to keep talking about how uh, your class is just about how there should be a stunt Oscar. Yes, so that really is there should class. be. There should be absolutely. Yeah. There absolutely. It's a small be. world. Like there's only so many. Like especially this movie with the horse stunts. It's a small world of people who know how to do th- that kind of work on a horse. They all. If you look at the credits of people who like are credited as like stunt riders, y- you'll be shocked at how many movies they've all done. How consistent it is. Like, yeah. Every every stunt rider with like a that you can find a credits list for. It's yeah, it's so extensive. And if you've ever done any horse riding beyond just that which is on a trail, my friends, it ain't easy. Um, it ain't easy at all. And to do that kind of stuff on top of just staying on and not dying is impressive. Let's talk about, I mean, if we're here, let's talk about how do these kind of practical effects and action sequences inform the narrative in a way that maybe CGI or, or kind of heavily choreographed maybe rope work or things of that, I don't not necessarily rope work. Yeah, but. I get what you're saying. Uh, well, there's d- something visceral there. Well, right? there's something visceral, but as Arthur already said, this film has has that great strength of you know taking the the musical school of when do you have a set piece, right? Musicals only have set pieces when they're good. When the emotions of a scene get so big that everybody's got to sing and dance, M- movies with big flight choreography operate under the same rules when they're working well. And I I, I think. When so much of your movie is about CGI, like you've pumped so much of the budget into the action that it is, it does become your primary focus. Uh, but you know, if you look at this, uh, this or the, you know the re- even the recent Mission Impossible's, when real people might really die uh, for your big expensive stunts, it does kind of force you to parse them out. Like even if like again these Mission Impossible films, the recent ones, they write from the stunts backwards. Yeah. They say what have we not done, and then they they kind of work backwards from that. And you can still use that to frame your story around when the emotions of scenes get so big that uh, combat action is is required. Uh, and again, I, I might be reading too much in like the w- the nuances of production between practical and digital, but I, I think, Dustin, you're right, though. Uh, th- there is a visceralness that happens, but as Arthur brought up, it does, it just feels like on a, you know, base, cr- cross your mind, listener, when you think about great uh, practical stunt work, whether it's this or, you know, Mesh Impossible or John Wick, these are films that the, these practical stunts are often really weighted in feeling more yeah. more often than you get with the big CGI fight. Well, I think the, the realism of the visceral uh, experience of them also works uh, because I've never been in a fencing duel in my life, um, which is good because I'd lose. Yeah. Uh, but 
I sort of understand the stakes. I understand yeah. even even when you're watching technique, you're going, "Wow, that's amazing!" or "That's really impressive." But there's like a there's like a realm of the possible that it creates, as opposed to moments where I mean, great laugh moment of the first Avengers movie where uh, the Hulk grabs Loki by the foot, puny little god, right? yeah, the, smash, like, smash, smash, smash. And, and there's I mean, there's no no one in the audience is going ooh 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 with each of those impacts. They're just laughing at the way he's throwing them around like a rag doll because it's not realistic, and so. So the, the, the experience is just it's just, just fundamentally different. Yeah, I mean, with, uh, you know, you're shooting magic uh, beams at people. You don't understand, like, when gods and robots and monsters are all fighting each other. You don't know what does what to who, what hurts who. Uh, in a film like this, or again, a John Wick, you know what happens when people get stabbed and shot. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know what happens when people get kicked through panes of glass. You twist my wrist around backwards, and then I know how bad that would probably hurt. Yeah. Like, Although it's never happened to me. Right. Yeah. You just have an understanding of what is physically happening to the bodies on screen. I right. think there's also something very, and from an editing and a technical standpoint, something much cleaner about it. I think, yeah. you have, especially if it's well-directed, uh, your your director and your editor and everybody have to have a, a much better grasp on spatial cognizance and where things lie and i think the issue especially with the kind of rise of michael bay action in the late 90s and early aughts where everything just got kind of noisy and it was hard to tell what was happening and where and it yeah. was hard to be spatially invested in that moment but when i see you know ethan ethan hunt jumping from one building to the next or or jumping out of that plane or i, I think even the in opening of goldeneye where he dives off the cliff after the plane uh, to try to get inside of it, I, I think there's something mm. very clean about it. Yeah, I'm, your your examples, Arthur, were making me think of uh, you know the the big forty minute smash 'em up at the end of Avengers Endgame, and the what five ten minutes of Antonio Banderas sword fighting dudes in this map room, right? Uh, with you know everything being prevised ahead of time, like you don't have people on set the same days. Like you can tell when you want if you've seen a Marvel movie, especially one where they call in all the favors and everybody's in it. If you've watched it more than twice, you've started to notice, oh, shit, nobody's ever talking to each other. Like, they shoot right. everybody's stuff, like, on separate sound stages and stitch it together. And it just, like, sucks the emotional weight out of scenes. Because, um, you know, they're just shooting on a back lot in Atlanta with a bunch of rocks and blue screens. Like, it's not real, but there's a real map. And, again, I know this is a, a pretty standard, like, oh, practical effects are good argument that we're making a little bit. But there is, yeah, there there is a stakes, there's weight, uh, and again, wh whether it's Ethan Hunt jump from buildings or again Antonio Banderas uh, and his stunt double uh, jumping up on a on a table, and there's just a wide shot of dudes sword fighting for five minutes. Like it just it goes on for a long time. You get to see skill and talent and just really cool stuff. Uh, whereas you know you were talking about Michael Bay in the early aughts, the kind of the pushback we got is maybe you know your Paul Greengrass, uh, you know doing uh, the the born, born born the born sequels, and yeah, the, it's still even the attempt to do realism in those films is hypercut, uh, hyper yeah. the attempt at doing hyperkinetic. You know, I, I think Paul Greengrass does a pretty good job, uh, but it get it got copied so much that people mm -hmm. just kind of got bored with it. Yeah, um, it, it's good for you know depicting. Um, disorientation in a fight, but it's also a great way to hide that you didn't teach any of your actors how to fight in your fight movie. Um, so it, it doesn't always have that weight, and it can be used as a, as a cheat and a workaround uh, as opposed to, you know, actually investing in your practical effects, I think. For sure, for sure. So, okay, well, let that, that that's a good opener. Let's go ahead and get into some of the icky stuff. Um, okay. From, because, you know, we got we to, gotta, you know, address the elephant in the room. Sure. So, um... Antonio Banderas is Spanish. Yeah. Um, uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones and Anthony Hopkins are both Welsh. Are they both Welsh? They're both Welsh. I, th I thought Anthony Hopkins was English. I don't uh, know why. I'm pretty sure he's Welsh as well. But, but, I mean, I'm not going to look it up right now. He's white is all that matters. Exactly. That's he's really what it comes down UK to. UK white. Yes. All three of them are European white. Yes. Uh, which is complicated when so much of this film centers around Mexico, but it's even more specifically, uh, self-determination for, uh, the mixed and, uh, indigenous peoples of Mexico and the Southern United States. Right. Which again, at the point that this film takes place is really, you know, California, New Mexico, uh, Texas, like it's all still Mexico, baby. Like, right. yeah. Uh, and it is so much, even the sequel gets into this too. The sequel gets into like backroom dealings about statehood for california and stuff which i think they have to fight some uh, pr uh proto confederados i think mm -hmm. uh yeah th this film and its sequel are both invested in the history of california and and the history of the you know the people that are in indigenous to mexico 
And so having stories that, again, despite coming from the studio system, seem invested in another country's culture and his history is really interesting. And it robs that weight when you, you do this kind of ethnic swapping a little bit. It yeah. kind of cut, cuts any themes you were wrestling with out, out at the knees. Now, I think part of the way they, they sort of get away with this is that we are talking about people, with, with the exception of Banderas, um, as far as characters, are from the aristocracy. Well, so, they are supposed to be European. Right. Yeah, so yeah. I think Anthony Hopkins is honestly the one that's the least icky, because that character would, uh, would be a white dude. Yeah. Yeah. But his, you know, his daughter is, is at least, you know, mixed uh, in terms of European and, and indigenous American ancestry, uh, Catherine Zay-Jones is Welsh. Mm-hmm. And again, Antonio Banderas is playing a dude whose family is probably mostly indigenous American. And yeah, not. Nah, and yeah, I think yeah. you're right. It's 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 those two characters, especially when you have you know the little old lady from the village telling Catherine Zay-Jones about her mother. And again, I, you know, Catherine Zay-Jones is a kind of a gross quote. Do you guys want to hear about this? Uh, yeah. She talked about her her Celtic heritage. Uh, uh, and the, the fiery Latin heritage and be like, yeah, I get it, which is a gross way of saying, yeah, colonized people. I, 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 under, I think I can make the connections of these characters, but it's a very clumsy way of phrasing it from the time it's, the film is released. It's not the same, well, but well, it's, but yeah, I mean, it, I, it's the late, it's there's a late, something analogous. Yeah, it's the late nineties. She's a younger person. Like, right. I, I don't think she understood the nuances of what she was saying, but it's, a, it's a gross quote, but yeah, there is something analogous there, right? To the history of like, uh, people being oppressed by foreign colonizers, but it's, it's a different thing. It's a different thing. And now here's the thing that like my mind does. Okay. So first of all, movies objectively good. Yeah, which is a problem. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to wrestle with. That, that, that makes it more difficult. So there's one thing on, on one side. And then there's another thing where I say, well, clearly if they made the movie now, they would have cast it differently. And that would have been fine. And it would, you know, would be the right thing to do. And the fact that they did not or were not aware of the right thing to do in 1998. It, it would yeah. be such a different movie now. It yeah. really would be. Uh, I, I absolutely think you're right. And again, it, it just kind of comes back to how the, the cultural and ethnic history of, like, uh, you know, Tejanos and, and Californianos. I, did I get that wrong? Sounds I right. I think I got the second one right. But again, we're, we're talking about two, like, big chunks of land that never really belong to anybody. America mm-hmm. can pretend they own Texas and California. They don't. They don't. They just don't. Those are two countries that, two states that, if they wanted to, have economies and populations equipped to probably run okay on their own. Yeah. So the fourth they, largest economy in the world is again, California. And these are also two big chunks of land that throughout their history are just about people saying, nope, we own this now. It's just about people rolling in saying, now we live here and now we run it. Like it, it is uh, historically, culturally, ethnically, two of the like most complicated places. And again, I keep bringing in Texas because uh, just how similar in history it is to, to California and the way right. in which statehood uh, in the U- in the U.S. was like achieved for both of those places. It's a lot messier th- than some of the other states. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's just complicated. And right. the film really doesn't want to deal with that because the more you get into that, and that's the, the thing that hurts so much, though. The film can't get into it yeah. because it has to acknowledge the whitewashing it's already done. But by not getting into it, it does kind of steal some of the interesting stuff it is doing. Like as you know, Zorro as somebody who is part of the colonizer class, who is trying to be an ally, who lifts up somebody from the oppressed class as an older man, saying, "Hey, I've got the tools and resources to help you do what I did." Like, there's a lot of cool stuff in here. There really is. But again, like erasing like that really complicated ethnic history of of these parts of the world is a misstep. Right, and I do think the move to um, you know make it the sort of you know. Batman Beyond a year before Batman Beyond, as you said off mic, uh, Dalton, I believe. Uh, well, that was an observation that, that Patrick Willems video I, I oh, pointed okay. out also pointed that out. I was like, oh damn, he's right. So I mean, you know that that I think that's good. You know, regarding you know this sort of bringing a peasant up to be the his own sort of avenger and yeah. uh, working for his own society. But that being said, uh, rather than a, I mean, well, actually, it is a white savior. But rather than simply being a white savior, the story becomes that of a rich savior. And, it so, still it, does pivot it, that it's, way. It's a bit Batman, you know, in that. Sense. Uh, yeah. That, yeah. that you've got to have a rich dude uh, to you know help all the poor's. And, the, I mean, it's a very culturally appropriate question now, as we see a celebrity singing "Imagine" uh, in the midst of the COVID. Imagine outbreak. there's no rich people. That's what I like to imagine. But uh, it's one of the things that came to me is like this: this guy could probably just be using his wealth to help to help the community. Mm-hmm. Instead, he's just created this idol that shows up once in a while to 
to incite their spirit. Yeah, it's it's a cl- and Go it's ahead. incidental that they sort of save the world from the Santa Ana whatever and the mine thing. Like that, this is basically just still a revenge story. It, it did, well, and I have some thoughts. That culminated on that. there. We can, yeah. yeah. I think we can pivot to that because I think the revenge story half of the movie is done really well, mm-hmm. um, and we can maybe circle back around to that because I, I think you're right. Ooh. The the revenge stuff does become so central that it does it does rob like really what their goal is and Antonio Banderas uh you know Alejandro roasts uh, Diego about this right he's like hey man uh you said we were gonna help the people you just want to kill this guy that was mean to you uh, yeah. and stole your kid I mean dude needs killing I'll give you that yeah but he does yeah. roast him a little bit for it yeah. but you're right it does the film by that third act it's like okay well y- you know that. This is a film. You're here for the revenge, not the the, the liberation. The social justice, yeah. But that stuff is still there, and it's still in, like the the, uh, the bad guy, uh, uh, Henry Love, who's Raphael? a re- uh, not Raphael, the other uh, the, the, the happy Harry Love, who was a real person who really. Uh, we'll get into the the way this film uh, circles in real history later. Well, he's really channeling a Custer kind of vibe. He is, yeah. but he's a, he was a real guy, and he was oh, one of the first like state law enforcement uh, officials, and he was a one of the founders of the California Rangers. Mm. Uh, and again, uh, Joaquin Murrieta, real bandit, real real guy, huh. uh, or at least allegedly real guy that Harry Love really allegedly killed. Uh, again, just weird, yeah, historical. Again, the timeline's off. Like, it didn't actually happen around the same time as this film takes place. But, yeah, real guy who really pickled a dude's head. Okay, uh, can I just tell you how awesome and, like, like steely tough it would be to drink the rum out of your pickled brother's head jar? Dude, the saddest, the, the, the like, saddest hard-ass hard thing to ever do. It's like, you know... <laughs> You're absolutely right. It is steely and cool, but it is also oh, so like, tragic. So sad, but I'm just like, dude, I mean, I don't know anybody in the world, anybody. You know, I bet all the money in my pockets against all the money in any of your pockets that nobody we could find would do that kind of thing. I mean, this, I guess this well, does. It depends on your brother, I suppose. <laughs> this does pivot us back a little bit to what we were talking about, though, right? With the just the, the whitewashing of the film kind of erasing the, the historical culture of, of, of real, like, stories. Mm-hmm. Um, it is interesting that the film inserts two real figures from history into this story, and I, I think it it does go to show, yeah, history is stranger than than fiction, man. Like the history of uh, of Central Latin and even the southern part of the United States is just it's just full of people who got enough people and guns together to say I'm in charge. Is wild, right? Uh, guys like Harry Love are very real. Uh, wow. Guys who had like uh, you know. U.S. military honors and then spent the latter half of their career trying to use that career to just, like, foment rebellions. Um, I can't remember the story, but there is a dude who just, like, uh, took off uh, and, and tried to liberate, in big fat air quotes, Baja, California. It was a real thing that happened. Uh, American history is full of crazy grifters, uh, including crazy grifters who wanted to start their own countries, which, again, is the plot of this film. Like, there is cool historical stuff that really happened that is really being woven into the text of this film. And, and again, it's another thing that makes the missteps that more noticeable. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So let's talk about blowing up the mine, shall we? Yeah. I mean, I, the I moral think... of the film is that blowing up gold mines is good. Yes. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm for this, you know, I mean, obviously they're employing slave labor, uh, which is a real thing that occurred, and they said all well. It's a real occurs. thing that still occurs. There it is. Yeah. Uh, you know what the the uh, number one economic export of Libya, right? Uh, diamonds. Slave labor. Oh. Yeah. Ever since uh, we we uh, so graciously liberated them from Omar, um, yep. A lot of sl- a lot of slave trade happened in Libya right mm, now. Gross. So yeah, but again, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, mines wherever they are in the world used and still use slave labor. Yeah. Uh, even when they pay you. Hmm. Even when they pay you, Harlan County, USA. Watch the film, friends. Oh God, yeah, we get, yeah, we're we're just talking about precious metals right now. Yeah, <laughs> God, we haven't even thought about talking about coal mining. And, mm-hmm. yeah. Ooh, yeah, they 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 done the they they done Appalachia dirty, man. Yeah, uh, there's two parts of the country that have been done dirty. It's the, it's the plains and it's Appalachia, uh, in in heavy measure. Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right, though. I mean, that's that is how it goes. Mining is dangerous and dirty work, and it gets a lot of people killed. And it makes a whole, whole, whole lot of money. And the people doing the extraction never, never in the history it. of miners have ever seen yeah. the fruits of that labor. It is a heavily anti-colonialist and heavily anti-capitalist film. And again, 
makes that whitewashing a little bit weirder. Well, well what was interesting, because it, it, it's, as you say, is anti-capitalist and anti-colonialist, what that translates to. So the Spanish colony, so it's anti-Spain, but it's also anti-Don um, Rafael, the, uh, the sort of capitalist person coming in who's you know grifting this money from santa Ana, yeah. trying yeah. to you know i mean the whole scheme is by his by his by california with his own gold right yeah um <laughs> and and doing this sort of uh thing where it says no you know what maybe california should belong to like you know californians uh that'd be an idea rather than belonging to the dons the barons the um oligarchy yeah. the robber barons the one percent and so yeah there's there's a very kind of um workers uh party kind of message there, well and yeah. again uh don Raphael like is a known war criminal is a known bad guy uh f's off back to spain for 20 years and comes back and the people are like oh, okay and that is what happens yeah. this is i mean all the people in charge of the american government right now are people that uh, we hated during the bush years for getting us into a war we had no place of being in or well, we hated during iran contra during the reagan years. there you go same bunch and yeah. again this is yet another point where martin campbell's film takes a look at the real history of the United States and says, oh, yeah, we're criminals just, like, F off for a little bit and then come back and act like nothing happened. Yeah, that's Heroes just a, welcome. Exactly. It's a thing that happens in history, and it is it is so interesting to see this film at so many points try to, to really wrestle with uh, if you set the because again the, the classical Zorro stories are all set in the pre-Santa Ana period. They're mm-hmm. all set in the, the struggle for Mexican independence. There's still plenty of struggle happening after Mexico get, uh, obtains independence from Spain, and it is so interesting that this film folds so much of that real, you know, we don't talk a lot about, like, uh, the pre-antebellum and post, you know, the pre-war and post-war of, of this country, uh, the Civil War. Like, the 1840s and the 1870s are, like, two deeply fraught decades and really, you know, several years on either side. Right. There's so much interesting history going on, and it's, it's just not explored in, in our cinema very much, and for this film to tie so much of it in the story is really exciting it's yeah. part of why i like the movie so much yeah but uh, is there anything for you dustin of this mind stuff you, you've seen you know you've already mentioned that the, the film goes back to being a revenge movie even though they're freeing the slave labor uh that's uh you know being in uh used at this this mine uh do you like the end of this film because you, you seem a little well, i mean I, I mean i like how it you know eventually they do rescue everybody but i mean don diego is there to get don rafael that's what he's there to do yeah, yeah. i mean that's that's the reason why he's there zorro uh you know antonio banderas is there for them but he's there for Catherine zeta jones i mean elena is really a strong part of his motivation and honestly just to fight love i mean that was what i was about to say yeah fighting captain yeah. love is a big well and i think that's it speaks to how good Antonio is in this film. I know I mentioned some of the accent work he's trying to do. Like he definitely is trying to do different voices for Zorro and for his like his fancy man cover. Yeah. Uh, but he he is also doing something interesting in the scene where you know he talks to um to Anthony Hopkins, uh, Don Diego, uh, and, and is like, "Hey man, I had to like look the dude who killed my brother in the face and like smile and have drinks with him, and you're still obsessed with revenge." So it is interesting that. Again, I, I'm just pushing back on you a yeah. little bit because I, mean, I, I I think that confrontation's there, yeah, for sure. And like, it's like the the movie's like, hey, by the way, there's like these other stakes, yeah. But when it finally comes down to the stakes playing out, narratively speaking, it, it comes right back. It does turn back into a yeah. Hollywood movie. You're, yeah. you're right, but I, again, I just wanted to push back because I feel like the film does have an answer to that within the text. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was worth no, no, it's it worth mentioning. Yeah, but I, again, I think it sort of like tries to have its cake and eat it too, and it does. doesn't quite succeed there. Well, and I think the purest moment of that is, uh, as Arthur mentioned, uh, the the reuse of the GoldenEye death, which is yeah, yeah, having Henry Love fall and then be crushed by gold. Yes, which rules. It's fabulous. It's yeah, fine. totally, totally metal. I'm... Yeah, it's cool. I love it. Love it. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> look, I am uh, I'm a big believer uh, in that your your villain's death and how cool it is says a lot about how good your movie is. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And that's an all timer. It's got to be satisfying. Yeah. You got to yeah. drop gold on on a gold hungry guy. It's mm-hmm. too cool. It's too cool to yeah. pass up. For sure, for sure. Um, yeah, I, I, I was mentioned earlier the Custer uh, sort of, you know, coding there. Um, sure. And, I mean, the almost erasure of indigenous people. I mean, again, they're they're basically just Mexicans, you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a moment where they're speaking some sort of Miztec or some other similar language. Yeah, that was a really cool scene. But other than that, you know, it, it's just a little bit, you know, less on that. But I don't know what, if the Custer thing helps or hurts or... 
I think it helps. Does anything? Yeah. I mean, it's it's you know they're they're taking the iconography that any yeah. most well not most a lot of people will recognize. Oh, this dude looks like Custer. He's a bad guy. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's helpful. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. So I, I simply just want to mention indigenous yeah. peoples uh, for that purpose. But I don't know if I have anything more to say about that. Are there other big thematics that we want to wrestle with? Yeah. I mean, we, we talked a little, and you've talked about how this is a revenge story. And, and I, I brought up Watchmen and talking about expanding the syllabus. Um, and I think there's something interesting that the Mask of Zorro gets. Uh, it, it is that all, all Mask Hero stories are fundamentally revenge stories. Um, there, there's a great line, and again, I, I already mentioned a little bit, um, but there's a, there's another line that Antonio gets uh, where he says, you know, people are dying and all I can think of is Captain Love. How can I do what is needed when all I feel is hate? Um, and it does kind of get at the core of what's going on in mass hero stories, right? It is all about people who cannot cope with, like, intense feelings of hate and loss or, you know, desires for revenge or desires to set the world right. You know, whatever it is, there's some big unquantifiable unspeakable pain uh that can only be dealt with uh through you know punching people in the face while you're wearing bondage gear uh, well, I, I mean it's honestly almost a trope that just goes back to zorro himself yeah i, I mean, mean he's such a big influence from in the Batman. 1920s yeah 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 I mean, well it's uh, myth redemptive violence yeah. i mean it's just that if you do punch the right guy in the face you'll finally feel better and even when movies like wink at it like they'll always be you know whatever yeah. but it's like at the same time it's like but it felt good when you did it right and it felt good for the audience to watch him do it and so it keeps perpetuating that you know and i think that is i mean that that probably does put the the cleanest point on what you were getting at as how the film about the films pivot back to being a revenge story because it does instead of being a story about hey gold mines are bad sometimes uh or maybe all the time mm-hmm. uh maybe maybe chopping up uh people's land and saying it's your country is bad uh it does kind of pivot away from that stuff back to man wasn't that don diego a dickhead wasn't that harry love just a weirdo for pickling heads yeah, it, it kind of it does pivot back on itself. Big, and I, again, it, it is because at the end of the day, all of these mass hero stories, whether it's a billionaire or not a billionaire, um, they all do become about people who just can't deal with their trauma. Right. Um, which, again, I, I think that's why I brought up Watchmen in terms of like talking about IP management. Um, and again, this this film is no like weighty existentially like uh, psychologically heavy text, but I do think it's trying to engage with those ideas at least a little bit. Which is more than we get from, I think, literally any Marvel movie. Right. I totally agree. Yeah, I think there's something valid about that, about the the ability for this film to wrestle with like revenge and hate as like consuming compulsions that do stop you from being the person you want to be. Right on. Yeah, I think there's something there. Very cool. Very cool. All right. Well, let's render a verdict with this film. Um, shelf or trash? What do you say with the mask of Zorro, Arthur? Um, I'm going to say shelf. I think as a late 90s action blockbuster, uh, it holds up incredibly well. It has a very timeless appeal. It's a ton of fun. Um, and it's one that we should, you know, go back to and revisit often. I think it's it's a great hallmark of that period. Very good, very good. What do you say, Dalton? You know, not a lot of films have a sexy sword fight. Um, the 300 sequel has one. Uh, that one's pretty cool. Not a lot of films have sexy sword fights. And I, I could do with more of that. Uh, we can talk about, we didn't, God, we didn't even get into Dalton that. Dalton has a very specific kink. Sure. Uh, we didn't, I'm not, look, I'm not going to argue with you. Uh, we didn't, we didn't even get into the, uh, the sexual politics of that scene. Ugh. We could have, you could teach a class just on that scene and whether or not it's totally hot or a little creepy or both. I don't know. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I absolutely <laughs> don't. And I think, I, I think that scene makes probably the best case that any scene in any film has ever made of the two not being mutually exclusive. Uh, it's, yeah, it's a great film. Arthur's right. I, it is kind of a hallmark of its era and it's like mode of filmmaking. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's nothing special. It's not going to change your life. But if you want to like look at what golden era, you know, Hollywood before it imploded due to a, a combination of superheroes streaming and COVID-19. Uh, 9-11. And 9-11, yeah. I mean, if you want to look at Hollywood in this weird kind of, I don't know, what do we make movies about? The Cold War's over. This is, yeah, it, it is really great. I mean, there's just something really purely cinematic about it. Uh, yeah, it's absolutely shelfable. Very good, very good. It is objectively fun. It is objectively good. It is also fully problematic, and um, I'm not saying I don't care. I'm saying that those things are there, and you sort of have to bracket it and then put it on the shelf anyway. Yeah. It's good. Um, So I also say shelf. 
if you if you can't get past that, that's okay. Like you don't yeah, need I, to watch I, this movie. Yeah. And if you can't get past it, I don't blame you. Yeah, because if, if you have the yeah, if you have the issue and say I'm not putting it on my shelf because it like you know sidelines that that sort of justice issue, fine. It was or because of the whitewashing. Fine. It was all I thought about until Harry Love got gold dropped on him, and I was like, all right, I'm good. I'm back on the movie's side. I, I think the horse jumping uh, at that point, I'm like, you know what, I'm there. There's such good horse comedy in this movie. Oh, man. Also an early example of the horse foo we would come to love in John Wick Chapter 3. I do love some horse foo. Oh, my God. It's brilliant. The entire kerfuffle in the barracks. That whole sequence <laughs> yeah. is a delight. It's great. It's so good. Yeah. Uh, it's It's gross. It's icky. It's problematic, but... Yeah, what movie made by Hollywood isn't? And it's objectively fun. So, there you go, dear listener. Um, Those are our thoughts on this movie. I do believe we have a Patreon pick for next week. Is that true, Arthur? That's right. Next week's episode is sponsored by our dear, sweet Patreon friend, Keithan. Uh, if you are interested in making us watch movies and forcing our hand, you can go over to patreon.com slash GTM and find out more about those opportunities. You can also listen to Good Trash Archdiocese, where we play Monster of the Week. Yeah, it's Ooh. a lot of fun. Hopefully. Um, <laughs> it's fun for us. It's, so, we're, yeah, I we're having the time of our lives. I don't know if it's going to translate, but we'll see. Um, if you'd like to meet Father Titus T. Beauregard. Yeah, uh, if you want to hang out with Ed the Mischief Demon, uh, perchance you would have a good time. I don't know. And episode zero of that is for free over there, as we mentioned. So you can go check it out and see what you think if you want to get invested in that road show. Um, but back to Keith and he, uh, I asked him what he wanted to do. Uh, he's kind of known for out of the box picks, a lot of nice. international cinema. Uh, he picks one a little closer to home this time. Mm. Um, so here's kind of his reasoning behind it. He says he thinks this would go well sandwiched between, uh, Mask of Zorro and the, the movie we have picked for the week following. Um, and it would also place us in a position for a Texas double feature because of that other movie, mm. uh, that's, that's there. Um, and he also has some additional homework, but he has chosen, David Burns, True Stories. I am vaguely aware of this film. It's an anthology film, right? I'm, I'm not sure. drawing an entire blank. Um, and so David Byrne of The Talking Heads. Yeah, that's, I thought it was that David Byrne. Yeah. yeah uh, it is a set in small town Texas, I believe. It's got John Goodman. Um, let's see if we can find you that synopsis real quick. Um, I'm only familiar with it through the, uh, I just put Talking Dead. That's not it. <laughs> I don't even know what I'm looking for. Um, I found it. Did you find it? I did find it. There we go. Let me know what that synopsis I've is. I've got it. Uh, so from IMDb by uh, Daniel Joss Leary, a small but growing Texas town filled with strange and musical characters celebrates its ses ses sesquintial? sesquicentennial? Sesquicentennial. I don't know. And coverage on a local parade and talent show. So this sounds weird. I'm very into it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's also directed by David Byrne. Yep. Stephen Tobolowsky's credit as a writer on this? So it's like a what? vaudeville variety show musical thing? Uh, I don't know. We'll find out. This, I, I'm, I've never seen it. I, I've heard, I, I know the, the name. I, I don't think this is what I thought it was right away. This sounds fascinating, though. Yeah, I, I recognize that. I think the cover from, uh, I think it's in the Criterion. Um, but he has also said, if you want to do a little extra homework, uh, the Talking Heads cut a recording of all the music they did for the film and put it into an album. If you'd like to check that out, interesting. I would very so much. Like I would like out. to look. We're that. gonna be talking Talking Heads next week. Ah, oh, damn. I, I guess I gotta. Like I guess I need to try to watch Stop Making Sense before next week as well, too. Huh? Is that Good the Demi one? That's the Demi one. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go, Delisher. That's what's happening next. You keep watching. We'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. Oh.